0: This one feels weird, but it also feels kind of right. I'm just going to be honest. I'm in bed. I'm doing the podcast in my bed with my laptop, with this microphone, with a glass of Chianti. And I'm not kidding about any of those things. My wife is in the main room watching Queen's Gambit, three and a half year old sleeping. The nursery is all done with a crib and a changing table. And a new chair, so there's no room for me there. There's really no room anywhere, so I'll be uh, podcasting between the sheets. Welcome in. Yeah. Get cozy. Get comfy. I love how some of these podcasts have these incredibly fancy, elaborate studios. You don't need it. You don't need it. This is one medium where you don't really need much. I remember my original vision was that I would just record myself during dog walks into my voice memos and upload it. I didn't realize you needed audacity And a decent sounding microphone. But originally I was just like, why don't I just talk when I walk? Kill two birds with one stone. And those two birds that would just be destroyed. Like a Randy Johnson fastball in spring training. Would be a dog walk and a podcast. Well here we are. It's episode 142. And I'm officially too comfortable. Do I sound tired? Do I sound cool, calm and collected? Just chilling in bed with you? Let's do this. Let's do the damn thing. I just read a story this week, and I realized there are some people that do things. They do things for leisure and recreation. That would actually be my nightmare. And I'm not judging. I'm not judging. I appreciate differences. But there are just some activities that people do for fun that would actually be a weird form of torture for me. There's a guy here in Marin County. He's 44 years old, born in France, lives in Larkspur. His name is Cyril de Moreau. Hey, Cyril. Bonjour. Huh? Uh Huh? Cyril is a uh, kayaker. He's a, uh, how do you say, a travail bien kayaker and is attempting uh, to, uh this guy is attempting a solo kayaking mission from Marin County to Hawaii. Folks, that is 2,400 nautical miles and it's going to take him about 60 to 70 days to complete. You know, he's doing this for fun. So here's an avid kayaker. I understand some people enjoy kayaking, but he wants to leave the coast of Marin County and then just kayak for 70 fucking days to Hawaii. And his kayak has a six foot cabin to sleep in. It's an $80,000 kayak. And the guy is five foot 10. So like I said, some people do things for fun that actually sound like a form of torture. He's five foot 10. The sleeping cabin is six feet. So if you're claustrophobic, let me set the scene for you. This is actually going to make you squirm a little bit. If you're claustrophobic, this guy's Cyril, this Frenchman from Marin, he's just going to be nonstop kayaking, nonstop kayaking every day. Paddle, 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 paddle. He gets tired. He lays back into his kayak, zips himself into a six-foot cabin. Of course I couldn't sleep. He's bringing 70 days worth of freeze-dried food. This to me legitimately sounds like the death penalty. Like you're sentencing me to death. If you just sent me out in a kayak and said, go sleep in that little boat and try to paddle your way over there to Hawaii. Go ahead for 70 days. That's it. That's the end of me. But this guy's amped. It's his passion. And I think I'm impressed, but I'm actually scared. If you're scared of sharks, if you're scared of vertigo, seasickness, being claustrophobic, it's just like, holy shit. There are some people that are drawn to things that just sound awful to me. I mean, to a lesser extent, cross country is a sport. Cross country is a sport. That sounds awful. Even when I saw Free Solo about all these rock climbers in Yosemite, just climbing rocks. No thanks. I mean, it sounds awful. But this is what they love in life. They don't enjoy doing it. Like, you know, this is my hobby, this is what they love. So I love the stories. I like to hear what people are into, but sometimes it crosses the line in my head. I go, well, that is actually a form of torture for me, for my comfort zone, sleeping in the dark ocean, sleeping in the dark ocean on my mission to Hawaii. That's just goodbye. It's death. These guys that go rock climbing without ropes, they just start climbing. That's death, right? In cross-country, someone explain to me. What's the fun? I go on a run for what? Two, three miles, I'm done. 24 miles through the woods, competing. I have a student who's like a really good cross-country runner. And I asked him, what do you like about it? And he said, I don't know. I was like, the conversation's over. You had a chance to sell me. So you're on the cross-country team? Yeah. You like it? Uh, yeah. What do you like about it? I don't know. Okay. You were done here. I hope he makes it. I hope this guy makes it. But ho, Ellie, shit! Is he actually going to sleep? Am I going to sleep? Trying to do this episode in bed, and am I just going to nod off? <laughs> Are you bored yet? Are we all just bored? Should we start over? In three, two, one. Hey, it's episode one hundred and forty-two. I think. Let me check my phone. Yeah, one forty-two. I think I'll start over. I'll tell you, I'm coming to you live from my state-of-the-art studio with my producer Hal, who's on his break right now, but Hal will be back in a moment to bring you all the bells and whistles to make it sound like a magical experience. Magic! All right, I think I'm in year seven of teaching and there's one thing that doesn't stop and that's the debate. How do you grade them? How do you assess these kids? It's really an ongoing debate where everybody has an opinion and they're always trying to advance the system. But there's a reason you can't advance the system away from A's, B's, C's, D's, F's. A's, B's, C's, D's, F's. We all grow up into this system and just feel like, eh, it's normal. That's what school is. It's these letters that we aspire to attain. It's these numerical values. It's these grade point averages. And they tell us what the ceiling is, and we aspire for that. Then we put together a transcript. And that's how they matriculate us through the school systems. Okay. And a lot of us don't even question it. But I feel like nowadays, there's more people who look at societal norms and go, wait, why? Wait, just why is it like this? So in my teaching career, at least there's an attempt nowadays to modernize a very antiquated system. I and mean, we have so many of these students with tunnel vision. Not so much the enjoyment of the learning experience. Stimulate your minds. Gain that knowledge and wisdom. No, instead it's just, hey, how do I get that A? What do I got to do today? Like they're on a game show to survive each class. What do I have to do to just get to that bell with an A? Honestly, I actually ask my students, if I just gave you all A's at the beginning of the year, would you remain motivated throughout the year? And they're all honest. Hell no. Maybe one kid would say, yeah, I guess I'll stay motivated. But if you promise them the A on day one, say no matter what you ace this class, then you lose them. So you do have to dangle this carrot. You dangle the carrot. And what's the goal of grading? Well, it's supposed to be you improve their learning, that you actually inform them of how they're learning. And you inform yourself as the teacher of the areas to address, the areas to improve. So you're supposed to examine their work and provide feedback that's going to help them develop, that's going to help them grow. It sounds great. But if grading is this idea to measure individual student learning, when do you start shoving letters into their face? You're at a B minus right now, and to get that up, you got to get that into the 85, 88% range to squeeze you up to a 90. We're going to have to sprinkle in some participation points. And we're just talking about points and we're talking about percentages and we're talking about numbers and we're talking about points and we're talking about percentages and we're talking about numbers. And what's the origin? All right, I looked this up. These grades are not an ancient system. They weren't even widespread until the 1940s. Even in the 70s, here's your stat of the night. Even in the 70s, the early 70s, only 67% of primary and secondary schools in the US were even using letter grades, And the whole concept goes back to 1785. A Yale president, his name was Ezra. Hey, Ezra. He implemented the first grading scale in the U.S. But if you study the history of education, you go back to the ancient Greeks. They were still assessing students, but they weren't using GPAs and letters. The early 1700s, a lot of these colleges weren't really grading the way we grade today. So when did it change? Well, as the U.S. population grew and K-12 mandatory school grew, they introduced a system, a standardized system, that was going to have to placate to third parties, meaning colleges. And that's when grades became really widespread. So if you ask me, why do you grade? Well, I have to, I actually have to, to put something on their transcripts so their future colleges could look at. But if it weren't for that, if they weren't playing this game called college prep, this competitive world of applying to their top schools and their backup schools and their fallback schools, then I hope I don't have to go to that school. And they have this tunnel vision, like I said, based on these grades. Then I have to play the game. I guess we all have to play this game. So if my goal is to develop this intrinsic value of learning, then I'm at such a disadvantage that they come into the class and they just simply say, what do I got to do to ace And they have studies that the students that are just totally focused on the grades rather than the actual learning experience are not going to retain a lot of the information that they cram for with these tests. And they're going to find shortcut solutions. They just are. They're going to put their energy into shortcut solutions and cramming the night before, pumping that Adderall till the sun comes up. It's an issue. Okay. It's an issue. But I attend meetings. Seminars, workshops. Don't you hate those words? Seminars, workshops. We have a workshop from 12 to 6. We have a seminar. It starts at 9. We have a break for refreshments. Don't you also hate the word refreshments? I do. Refreshments. I hate the word refreshments. Refreshments are actually fun. Like brownies, chocolate chip cookies. What are you picturing? String cheese, juice boxes, Capri Sun. But when I just say the word refreshments... It sounds like someone's just going to slap cold water on your face and put some hand sanitizer in your palms. There's your refreshments. Nah. Let's call it snacks. What am I talking about? Where was I? God! I need a teleprompter. I felt like I was going somewhere. Oh yeah. All these workshops, seminars, meetings. About how to grade them, how to grade them, how to assess them. And it's always changing. Well, on a personal level... Some of the brightest and sharpest kids I've ever taught get Fs. Maybe it's a big old middle finger to their parents. Maybe it's to the system. Maybe they have no aspirations for college because they can't afford it. Or they just simply don't like the classroom. The idea of being stuck in a desk. But for the kids that are soaking up the information, they're actually succeeding. If they're learning the content, but just not handing in assignments. Or maybe they have attendance issues. But at the end of the year, they successfully learned the content. It's weird to think that those kids get Fs. Are they rare? Maybe. I don't know. But some of the memorable students I've had, I just ask them, why aren't you turning anything in? You're clearly intelligent. You clearly participate and listen to what's going on in here. You've proven to me you're smart. And they just go, eh, you know, it's not for me. So some people do become disillusioned with the whole game. And I think we all know. Some people that maybe aren't the brightest lights but get straight A's because they know how to play this game. I'm not anti-grade. Grades could be very useful. Actually, let me take that back. I'm not anti-assessment, assessing students and letting them know, hey, here's an area you got to improve and here's what you're mastering. Here's what you're good at and here's what you got to work on. Of course, we have to do that. I'm all for that. But to the point of creating a purely competitive environment where they just feel the pressure of letters A, B, C, D. And from my whole experience as a student, I just felt like that was normal. Like there's some things where we just don't question because you go, okay, I guess this is what I'm doing from age five to 18. Getting report cards, getting progress reports and answering that classic question from adults. Hey, where do you want to go to college? And what do most kids know? What do most kids know? Nothing. Where do you want to go to college? Um, I just watched the March Madness tournament and I guess Marquette, has a good incoming class. So Marquette? Oh, okay. Do you know where that is? No, but their center seems to be a beast in the paint. Okay, I don't know any colleges outside of sports. When I was a kid, and I don't even realize what's prestigious and why. Like, there are definitely parents out there that would be disappointed if their kids went to Cal State Stanislaus versus Stanford, Harvard, Princeton, Dartmouth, Yale. But that kid at Cal State, Stanislaus, could still have one of the greatest learning experiences. Experiences. Outside of the sexism and the slavery, shouldn't we just go back to what the ancient Greeks were doing? I mean, come on. And weren't they entirely butt naked when we talk about our ancient Greeks as a reference point? What do you picture when I say the ancient Greeks? The Parthenon? Just a bunch of dicks swinging around town. A bunch of nudity. What do you picture? Statues. When I say the ancient Greeks, we refer to them constantly. Well, the ancient Greeks would have uh, greatly appreciated some of the advancements we're seeing in arithmetic. And uh, uh, The ancient Greeks would have really understood the plumbing system that uh, we've implemented here that in advance. The ancient Greeks would really... Uh... <laughs> Am I sleeping yet? Are you sleeping yet? Welcome to the sleeper. Episode 142. Stay with me. It's going to heat up. It really will. It really will heat up. Although in pyramid journalism, they tell you grab their attention immediately. Most important stuff at the beginning. Most scintillating stuff at the beginning. I'm not doing that, am I? I'm getting there though. You got to stay with me. You got to be patient on this podcast today. You know, Sometimes I like to kick in the door. Like with my wife, sometimes I just come home and say, honey, for a million dollars, would you never eat hot food again? Think about it. I'll just give you a million dollars cold cash right now, untaxed, in a duffel bag, just a cash prize of one million dollars if you agree to never eat hot food again. And my wife said, yeah, of course. A lot of questions like that. Okay, that's how I almost started this podcast, but I thought, too dumb. You got to talk about the kayaker. And here you are listening to the kayaker who's probably going to get eaten by a shark 20 feet into his journey. Everybody's still going to be celebrating. All right, Cyril, you got this. Au revoir, Cyril. Voulez-vous enchanter avec moi, Cyril? And then just... Is that a successful movie score? Where I just say... And you know I'm talking about Jaws. All right, buddy. I'm on Twitter. I am. I feel insane because I know I don't like it, yet I keep going back to it as if it's my number one news source. I never expected to be addicted to news. What am I just refreshing the timeline for? I need more news. I need more news. I need more scores. I need more celebrity gossip. I need more insightful takes, hot takes. What do I need Twitter for? I mean, I've weaned off quite a bit but I'm on it and I'm reading Seth Rogen's book just finished Seth Rogen's new book called yearbook and it's so funny. There's some heart in it, but there was actually one serious chapter and he starts talking about white supremacists and how they use Twitter freely. I didn't even know the name of the CEO at Twitter. It's Jack Dorsey. Why do I bring it up? Seth Rogen goes after Jack Dorsey for just turning his head, turning a blind eye to what this platform has become. I mean, Twitter, in a weird way, is historic. It's actually changed the world. It's given voices to so many people that have done destructive things. So many toxic people have been able to get their message out through Twitter. And I know there's other avenues. I know there's other social media sites. But what Seth Rogen was saying was actually enlightening. So you see the blue check mark. I guess for celebrities or anybody who's noteworthy enough, to get enough followers. I don't really know about the blue check mark, but you see it. And tweets from these verified users tend to appear near the top of searches. So it allows the information they contain to be disseminated faster. It gets out there faster. If you have the blue check mark, that's the truth of the algorithm, as I just learned in the Seth Rogen book. Once again, it's a hilarious book, but this part's not a funny part. It's just a wait, what part? So there's millions of people. That peruse Twitter, but when they see that little blue check mark, that verified check mark, they might take the tweets more seriously, like it's a symbol of status to imply legitimacy. Oh, well, this has the blue check mark. This is a true source. It's verified. This person's verified. Now it's a real source. So you could be a complete racist, a hateful bigot. You generate 30,000 followers. Maybe you write a terrible book about your alt-right and your white supremacy and your privileges. They took our gerbs. And these people start tweeting and they amplify a lot of hate. And they have freely used Twitter to turn up the volume on racism in this country. I'm not ever going to act like racism Didn't exist before Twitter, but the volume was a little lower, just a little lower. Now the volume's through the roof. It's as loud as it's been because of the amount of people that just use it for these ugly reasons. Well, Seth Rogen reaches out to the Twitter CEO, and he's the type of guy that just says, we're looking into that. Mm, We're looking into it. You know, the way Trump used Twitter, that's probably the first thing that comes to mind when I start talking about this. But the pyramid down from Trump of people using Twitter this way were a lot of people that were just freely putting a bunch of bullshit up there. And Dorsey wouldn't care. Why would he care? His goal is to make money and that's it. But Seth Rogen was tweeting at him saying, you don't give a shit, do you? And people are being killed. You're dividing the nation further. And the guy said, Jack Dorsey says, well, we're just putting a mirror up to the nation. That's an interesting theory. Is this just putting a mirror up to what was already there? Or is this platform creating a new style of discourse that people have gotten used to and feel like, you know what, I might be gentle on the streets, but when I log on to Twitter, I'm going to go after somebody. I do think it has sparked a lot of trolls to go harder in the paint than they would have ever gone in society. I think it brings the absolute fucking worst out of some people. Worst, and they feel like you know what? I'm playing the Twitter game. I'm on Twitter almost like they're detached from their own reality, and that's why I got to get out because it's up to me. I mean, am I that powerless where I can't stop scrolling through all this bullshit? All I have to do is not go there, keep the phone in my pocket, and not go there, and then my day feels a little lighter, maybe more joyful. That's weird that I even choose to go to this. I mean, there are a few laughs. Sure, there are some people that could actually debate me on this and talk about the value of Twitter. So I'm always open to the other side, the other perspectives, but white supremacy has loved Twitter. And it's a CEO who did too little too late. And now we sit in this toxic mess. Okay. So how am I ending this podcast with a tweet? And this is awesome for someone like me that just scrolls and scrolls and scrolls through an endless stream of forgettable shit, there was a tweet today that actually stopped me in my tracks. And it was from a guy I know. I kind of know. Our paths have crossed. His name's Jim Trotter. Longtime NFL writer, analyst. He's written for the San Diego Union Tribune, ESPN, Sports Illustrated. He's a phenomenal writer. He's such a good dude. And Jim Trotter, I'll just say for this story, is black. So he puts up this story and he's down on himself. And you got to click on the image to read the full story. And I'm going to read the full story right now. And it's such a message that needs to be heard. It almost speaks for itself. Like, it's not even worth analyzing. It's just beautifully written. And it's kind of heavy. But I'm going to get right into it. So from Twitter, as I just rip apart Twitter and then read you a tweet that I loved. This is from Jim Trotter, longtime NFL writer. He said, I often like to decompress by going to the golf range where I can escape everything by putting in my earbuds and swinging until the bucket is empty. Today was one of those days, but I didn't feel like changing into golf attire. So I showed up in battered sweats, worn sneakers and a non-collared shirt, attire that is frowned upon or banned at more expensive courses. I felt a bit self-conscious when I arrived, knowing I looked like a bum, but I didn't feel like changing out of my pandemic around the house clothing just to hit a few golf balls. As I walked to an open mat, a man working on his game stopped and asked, somewhat loudly, "'Are you a member?' "'Huh?' I said, surprised. "'Are you a member?' he repeated. I felt like all eyes were on me, and right away I went into angry, defensive-offensive mode. I just as loudly barked back at him, "'Why are you asking me that?' "'Was it my attire? Was it my skin color? Both?' The older man, who was white, appeared stunned. He said, "'If you're not a member—' They'll charge you for balls. I'm done with mine, and you could have these extra balls if you like. My anger quickly shifted to me. I felt ashamed for wrongly sizing up a person who was actually seeking to do something nice. I was mad that I had fallen prey and allowed today's toxic societal culture to see something that wasn't there. I thanked the man and told him I was a member and already had balls, but that seemed so insufficient as I continued past him. I had just done to him what i had never want done to me. I had prejudged him. I made him out to be in my mind something he was not. Unfortunately, I was not as quick to apologize and explain myself. By the time I realized the need to do so, the man was gone. Hopefully, I'll run into him again so I can tell him I'm sorry and we can discuss what transpired. Why am I posting this? Hopefully, others can learn from my mistake. The country is in a bad place, but we cannot allow it to take us from zero to overreaction in the blink of an eye, as I did. Just a tweet from Jim Trotter. What a story. As I was reading that, I was like, oh, okay, a little zigzag in the plot. You know, of course, as I'm reading it, I go, "Uh uh-oh, white elitist at the golf course about to say something racist to Jim. But instead, a lot of us are now on guard. We're ready for it. We feel like it's just lurking around the corner. And what we forget is a lot of what we see on our phones and devices doesn't truly represent how wonderful our communities can be, how wonderful society actually is. Like a lot of these fears, a lot of these thoughts, they just reside in our minds. And we allow one shitty news story. Maybe there's a ton of shitty news stories to represent our world. And that's where it gets to the point of no return. That's when media, and I defend journalism, but I can't defend all media. That's when media, how we consume the world through our devices, starts to alter reality. Turns out, Most people are actually pretty cool. Most people are pretty nice. What percentage of the country is like truly racist? I don't know. I'll say about 7%. Does that sound high? Does that sound low? I don't know. What percentage of the country are just dicks? Just like shitty people, mean people. Mm, Probably 11%. These are low numbers, right? I don't know. But what percentage of people are just like really nice? It's got to be 70, right? Seven out of 10 people you meet? Yeah, I'll stand by that. (laughs) These are arbitrary numbers. There's no research in this study. Just you answer it too. How about that? Now you answer. Now what do you think? But as Jim said, even though the country seems to be in a bad place, you can't go from zero to overreaction in the blink of an eye. We all have to become a little more pragmatic with our thinking. Maybe we all have to just do some yoga. Chill. Let's take a breath together. I bet this will help. Let's do it. Come on. I'm your guided meditation app. One big one. In through the nose. Out through the mouth.